The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> Today is day six of our summer seven day Sishin, 15th of January 2019. And this morning we're going to take up a story from The Hidden Lamp, uh, stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened Women, edited by Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon. And uh, we've been uh, slowly working our way through this over several years. Um, some of the stories are uh, quite koan-like, others less so, but um, they all have something valuable in them. Um, this one is quite short, and it's continuing on the the uh, uh, Korean theme that has run somewhat through this session, uh, and it's uh, a story about a 20th century Korean master, a nun called Man Seong Sunim. One day a nun asked Man Seong Sunim, how do I cultivate the way of the Buddha? No cultivation, answered Man Seong. The nun persevered. How then can I obtain release from birth and death? Who chains you to birth and death? Manseon asked in return. So that's our, um, that's our story today. But before we get into it, um, just a little bit of uh, biographical material. I do have some on her. Um, and this is coming from Zen Women, Beyond Tea Ladies, Iron Maidens and Macho Masters. It's by Grace Shireson. Manseong Sinim 1897 to 1975, was born Unja Kim and was an only daughter who married when she came of age. Her husband died just a few years after the marriage, leaving her deeply distressed. Her grief was so extreme that she sought a spiritual reunion with her late husband through Zen master Hanam, 1876 to 1951. And the spiritual union was, um, in, in essence, um, a meeting by means of a, a clairvoyant, um, a psychic. So, so a kind of, of seance, I guess. Um, and Grace Shireson comments, in the Korean culture of her day, a spiritual meeting with a deceased loved one was not thought unusual. Zen master Hanam promised her she would meet her husband once again if she renounced the world and became a nun. While Unja was hoping for a supernatural ceremony, she was comforted by Hanam's words, although she neither understood nor agreed with his instructions and their meaning. Um, I think what she means here, she didn't, 
she didn't actually um, get ordained at that point or have the seance. But years later, in dreams, she saw herself dressed in nun's garments and began to consider ordination. At this point, her grief had abated when she heard that Master Mang Gong, and his dates are 1871 to 1946, was teaching nearby, she went to meet him. This is one of the examples where you see the, the sort of the folk beliefs um, intersecting with, with uh, Buddhist ones because from a Buddhist point of view, um, somebody who dies uh, moves on to another life. So then uh, how would you be meeting the, the, the spirit of the deceased person um, in this life? But in, um, in Korea and Japan and, and China, there was this belief, a strong belief in ghosts. So this, this would be, uh, this was incorporated, I guess, into, into uh, Buddhist practice if not teaching. So the second master was the one that she, that she went to be, master, uh, meet, master Mangong, who was um, a great master of his time. Master Mangong, considered one of the foremost Zen teachers of his day, was a strong force for preserving and revitalizing Korean Zen during and after the Japanese occupation. It was a long occupation, 35 years, 1910-45. Japanese missionaries and bureaucrats had taken advantage of their occupation by attempting to destroy Korean Zen traditions and replacing them with Japanese Zen practices. Mangon was a powerful force in restoring the Korean Zen traditions that had suffered during the occupation. Mansiong sought his guidance. Um, just to give you give you a little flavour of of, of this, um, some of you may may have met uh, Inshosunim, Korean nun who lives in Kerikeri, who who visits us periodically. And a few years ago, um, she gave me a couple of raksus. Uh, these are uh, brown, uh, very similar to the colour of our robes. Um, not including a ring, but um, very, very similar in other respects to um, ours in design. And she was giving them to me because her order had um, finally made a kind of decision to no longer um, have them as part of the, the attire of uh, monks and nuns. And um, because they, they, they had not been a part of the clothing that monks and nuns wore, um, but were imposed upon the order in Korea by the Japanese. And so these garments, she didn't, she couldn't bring herself to throw them away because they're traditional, you know, Buddhist robes. But for her, they had the significance or they had the, they, they um, reminded her of um, uh, Japanese colonial rule in Korea, which was associated with a great deal of, of suffering in many different ways and um, oppression. Another thing that the, the, the Japanese ordered was that um, monks marry. 
and this, there is still a section of Korean um, uh, clergy who do marry, but the main um, order, Chogye order, uh, returned to celibacy for for monks and and nuns as well. It was not ever threatened um, with having to be to take up marriage un involuntarily because in Japan. There was, there was kind of a double standard there, a different one for monks or so-called priests and nuns. But anyway, um, Mangong was a, an important figure in, you could say, in the survival of um, Korean Zen traditions through this, this long occupation, oppression. Mangong knew he was forbidden to ordain a nun, and, and here actually monks have um, traditionally involved in the ordination of women, but there was supposed to be a certain number of monks plus a certain number of nuns for, the, for an ordination to take place for a woman, so that he couldn't meet those requirements apparently. But he believed that Man Seong's aspiration to become ordained was sincere. Their relationship illustrates how an enlightened male Zen master creatively fostered a woman's practice. When Mangong ordained Man Seong, he used as a substitute for a senior female nun um, uh, the memorial marker from his own late mother's funeral. And his mother had ordained late, late in life, and was a, was a senior nun. So he he actually had this memorial marker present at the ordination. Shyerson comments: um, In those war-torn times, it was difficult to come face to face with a fully empowered female nun to ordain Man Seong. Mangong followed an old ordination tradition of the nuns' community by invoking his dead mother, Wi Seon Sunim, during the ceremony. So this had a precedent, this type of ordination. It was called Wipai Sangjua, and it allowed a disciple-teacher relationship be, to be formed between a new st student and someone who, deceased, had been a monk or nun in life, like Mangong's mother, and having a priest, like Mangong, acting as an intermediary. In this way, Mangong connected Man Seong to her female roots, honoured his mother's practice, and allowed the nun's order to resume its ancient authenticity under his guidance. And uh, this sort of thing, this is not so rare, this kind of, um, um, kind of, bending of the rules in order to, to create a sense of continuity. Um, also, um, we know uh, happened um, multiple times in the, in the um, creation of our own ancestral line. For instance, at, at one point, there, there were no, um, I think I've got this right, round the right way, there were no um, Soto um, masters able to receive the transmission and so it was transmitted to a Rinzai master who then um, later on passed on the teaching to another Soto uh, monk 
so so as to to keep the the lineage going. Anyhow, um, Man Sayong began her formal Zen training, studying koans under Mangong, and he had a um, a retreat site on a small island off the coast of Korea. She alternated seated meditation with walking meditation, but she never lay down. And this is this is um, a practice that one one hears of uh, periodically, of uh, making a vow to to not ever lie down. Uh, effectively, that means um, sleeping, sitting in the meditation posture, and probably not sleeping all that much. After several weeks of intense effort, she began to break down physically. She developed Zazen sickness, and this is called Sangi in Korean, which according to Chinese medicine is the rising of heat and energy to the head. Um, and this is something that, that um, Master Hakuin in his years of extreme ascetic practice developed and had to be treated for by uh, experts in, in uh, Chinese medicine. But she persisted in her practice. Mang Gong instructed her to do abdominal breathing while walking slowly. She also did 100 days of chanting to clear her mind. Um, so her, you could say that her excessive effort, her um, extreme um, practices she was undertaking led to this this physical imbalance but it sounds like her her teacher um, uh, was able to give her practices that could rebalance things and and cure her of this zazen sickness which is the fact that it has a name is I mean you know means that it's something that occurs occasionally and is recognized um, also with this she says she did a hundred days of chanting to clear her mind. This is all something, also something that um, practitioners, um, other practitioners have taken up. For instance, uh, Master Sheng Yin, who did many thousands of prostrations, um, uh, he had this great difficulty in, in uh, memorizing, which was part of what he had to do as, in his training as a monk. And this completely changed after he he did all these prostrations. His mind um, did uh, clear. And what's behind this is the thought that there's a, um, a, a karmic obstruction there. And so doing these practices um, is a way of clearing that. Man Seong took five years to complete her Zen study under Mang Gong. After Mang Gong's death in 1946, she went on pilgrimage to test herself and mature her practice. One recorded incident during this time tells of how she approached one Zen master, put her foot on top of his, and asked, Whose foot is this? And of course, Nuns were not supposed to touch monks, 
So this was this was um, going against convention. Um, so it had a certain kind of um, daring to it, or or uh, forthrightness. Shasin says, her question reveals her understanding and her confidence in non-dual awareness developed through koan practice. The truth of oneness trumping the the uh, rules of of um, polite etiquette between ordained people. Can you tell me something about this foot that goes beyond the superficial naming of yours and mine? It's an implied question in her action. It is a decisive and bold expression of her understanding and at the same time a test of the teacher she meets. How would this monk respond to um, this rude behaviour by a, a mere nun? We're not told here um, how he responded. We're not told um, how um, rather she should also note we should also note that she is clearly not intimidated by direct physical contact and is confident enough to challenge a male master directly and strongly. How will he respond in this moment? Courageous and direct, she intended to teach or to be taught. So she was, she was, um, you could say throwing down a gauntlet, or maybe better saying she was inviting some dharma play, some creativity. Man Seong survived the Korean War that broke out in 1950, and she finally settled at Taesyong Convent near Pusan in 1955. During her years of teaching, she attracted many nuns from across Korea, serving as a living example of Dharma. She kept her te temple unheated and advised her student not to use bedding at night. And that's pretty um, out there. This Korea can be very, very cold, very cold winters. And traditionally, actually, Korean um, zendos have uh, a system of underfloor heating. So um, hot air is, is, di is directed through um, hollow tiles to keep the zendo warm. And normally people would sleep um, in quilts, inside quilts. And she's advising her students not to use bedding at night. So it would have been a tough place to train. She believed in, in the strictest Zen as the best method for enlightenment. Korea was impoverished and supplies were scarce. So it's perhaps a little bit hard to know what her what was behind that, whether it was was um, scarce resources or 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 whether she was just making a virtue of those or whether it was really um, um, a training point. Her stern manner 
earned her the nickname Gnarled Stick. <laughs> Think there of, of um, the, one, the name from the Tang dynasty, uh, uh, one of the few female masters to make it into the Koan curriculum. Um, she was known as Iron Grindstone Liu. But though her teaching methods were strict, she was known for her compassionate care for her nuns and her convent. There is not a square inch of her temple that she had not touched with her own hands. In other words, in other words, she worked on, alongside her um, her students to to maintain the temple. While her temple had previously been poorly funded, her strong teaching eventually attracted ample financial support. So, so presumed she would be have been instrumental in in restoring the convent. Man Seong was known for her simple and direct teaching during formal work lectures and work practice. And and the the example that we're looking at today comes comes from um, the teaching in her monastery. It's an, another example beside the one we're going to look at. Um, and then asked, "How long does it take for a sentient being to become a Buddha?" Response. There is no sentient being and no need to become Buddha. The nun looked puzzled and tried to ask another question when she suddenly heard a thundering shout from Mansayong Sunim. The poor nun suffered a shock. Nevertheless, when she recovered moments later, she glowed with an instant understanding and made a deep bow. And then Shaisen adds a little bit of commentary to this exchange. She says, uh, the nun operating on a conceptual level proposes categorical differences, um, sentient being versus Buddha. There are Buddhas, there are sentient beings, and there is time. So she's asking her question, you could say from the realm of conventional understanding, relative, the relative realm. With a powerful shout, Man Seong moves the student to break through her conceptual thinking. And she does it by, by uh, means that don't um, involve conceptual thinking. She doesn't explain to the nun, oh, you're thinking conceptually, but she demonstrates another way. One day Man Seong Sunim showed up where several nuns were grinding soy by beans to make tofu and demanded, is it your hand or the millstone that is turning? And this um, is similar to, to um, one of the koans in the Muwankan, neither the wind nor the flag, where 
um, two monks were arguing about whether it was the f temple flag that was moving or whether it was the wind that was moving. And um, then Hui Nang turned up and said, it's not the wind that is moving, it's not the flag that is moving, it's your honourable mind that is moving. She's using every opportunity to to um, to teach her students. Now, this last bit is is gives some sense of her her character. Man Seong's last wishes were to be thrown into the ocean, and that thereafter her name never to be spoken again. In other words, not cremated, but just just for them to take her. Her, her corpse to some cliff or other and toss her, toss her into the sea. And then afterwards for her name never to be spoken again. She was teaching even with her own death. There is nothing to hold on to. Find your own truth. And yet her dis disciples violated her commands cremated her body after a formal funeral service and gave her all the traditional expressions of, of respect for her and her teachings. Um, so they, they disobeyed her request. And Shasin comments, we can see this as an actual empowerment, a beginning of trust in their own authority and inner wisdom. So when um, the master's gone, then the disciples have to take charge. Um, Shasin also comments about the relationship between um, Mang Gong, the master that she started trained under, um, and her. That that she um, she says that her development under the chaotic conditions following the end of World War Two would not have been possible without the support of Mang Gong. He insisted on rigorous training standards, giving her a koan that sapped all of her strength. But when she faltered, Mang Gong taught her how to work through her physical problems and push on to complete her journey to awakening. And, and at, at this time, without, without the, the, the support of a master, um, she, she probably wouldn't have been able to um, get very far. It was, it was because she was, she was backed up by him um, in terms of the, the, the order hierarchy that she was, was able to take her position and teach following his um, departure, his death. He was a skilled, a skilled um, teacher, and but personally supportive of of Man Seong. So that's just just a little bit of background. So so back now to to our little exchange here. Just read it again. One day. A nun asked Man Seong Sunim, 
How do I cultivate the way of the Buddha? No cultivating, cultivation, answered Manseong. The nun persevered. How then can I obtain release from birth and death? Who chains you to birth and death? Manseong asked in return. So this um, exchanges in two parts. First question: How do I, how do I cultivate the way of the Buddha? How do I practice? This seems. Um, a fair enough question to ask. How do I practice? Isn't that what teachers are for, to, to uh, teach us how to practice? Um, a student will often come along um, asking um, how questions. How do I get more intimate with the practice? Uh, how, do I, how do I work with my anger? How do I get rid of distracting thoughts? And sometimes the teacher will will give some instructions, give give a, a fairly straight answer. But sometimes that's not the most helpful response. It's not what the the, the student really needs. Sometimes a student can be. Um, just excessively focused on technique or wants, wants the, the teacher to, to give him or her some kind of uh, pass key. But there, there is no such thing. There's, there's um, no map for this uh, spiritual journey that we're undertaking. No, no um, web page listing the, the, the 10 steps to awakening. Perhaps um, with the, with the, the subtitle Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's not. It's not in, here in the realm of some kind of um, uh, product that leads us to a certain result. New and improved, it might say. Forty forty percent more purification of defilements with this method. Though, though I'm sure you can find this sort of thing actually online now. And plenty of people looking for it. But the, the problem with this, this kind of attitude is that our, our um, 
wanting a um, kind of a list of, of steps is or a set of instructions a, a manual on the process is is an ego maneuver so it, it, in the background lurking in the background um, there's the idea of of acquiring something and that's that's okay we come we come to practice with uh, the habits of mind that um, we have that 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 cause us suffering and, and motivate us to come but at some point we have to understand that if 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 we're coming from from a place of um, wanting then that's just going to get in the way and so so Man Seong here she stymies her student rather than giving her instructions she just says no cultivation and and she's also pointing to um, basic teachings in Zen going uh, right back to Bodhidharma or at least to words attributed to Bodhidharma this is this famous four four statements about Zen um, a special transmission outside the sutras not dependent on words and letters direct pointing to the human heart seeing into one's own nature and attaining Buddhahood so Zen school is one where there's this direct pointing to the human heart and seeing into one's, one's own nature and attaining Buddhahood outside of the sutras outside of the, the, the teachings with all their, all their instructions their uh, myriad lists of ten this and six that and twelve that and thirty-six of the, the other not dependent on words and letters not based on um, uh, this sort of that set of instructions though given that it's amazing the, the volume of the literature that is associated with, with Chan and Zen for, for a school that's not dependent on words and letters and this and this um this whole um, theme of direct pointing um, permeates all or if not all um, nearly all of the of the koans the stories of the of the um, awakening of the masters just one example one um, close to to uh, time of Bodhidharma in fact involving Bodhidharma um, is it's the story of um, Huai Ke and this this appears in the Mumonkan he's said to have 
um, stood for many days outside Bodhidharma's cave where he was um, sitting. Um, in the, he was standing in the snow um, entreating Bodhidharma to become his teacher. And, and finally he's supposed to have um, cut off his arm to prove his sincerity. And um, this is coming from Principles of Zen, Martin Batchelor's book that we were looking at earlier. And she adds here, um, scholars found that actually Huayko's arm was cut off by bandits and he had impressed everyone by remaining equanimous, which might be the reason why this incident is co incorporated into the Zen story. And this would be a typical kind of uh, move uh, when creating a fable about um, uh, these great these great um, figures in the in Zen history. Based so it's based on some something that actually happened, but but sort of translated into into this um, very uh, condensed story of of the transmission. So anyway. Um, we'll go with the story he cuts off his arm to, to prove his sincerity to Bodhidharma and then Bodhidharma relents and asks him what he wants and the question, Hueco's question is your disciple's mind is not at peace I beg you master give it a, uh, to bring it peace Bodhidharma said Bring my, bring me your mind, and I will put it to rest. Huayko sat for a while, looking for his mind. Then he said, "I have searched for the mind, but have not been able to find it." Bodhidharma said, "See, I have put it to rest for you." Then, and in the mo that moment, Huayko is said to have had a deep awakening. So direct pointing to the to the human heart and seeing into one's nature. This is this um emphasis on, um, on a sudden awakening um, also uh, reinforced in the story of, of um, sixth ancestor Hui Nung. People probably know this, this uh, story where um, Hung Ren um, asks people to express their understanding through a poem and the, the head monk writes one poem and then, then the illiterate um, yokel from the south, Hui Nung, writes another poem and this, this second one is the one that expresses this, this teaching of sudden awakening. Um, So the, the, the head monk's poem is 
The body is the Bodhi tree, the mind is like a clear mirror. At all times we must wipe it clean and, and must not let the dust collect. So a, a continual process of polishing, you could say. And then Huey Nung writes, Bodhi, or get somebody to write on, on the wall for him, Bodhi originally has no tree, the mirror also has no stand. Buddha nature is always clean and pure. Where can dust alight? So this, this mirror of the mind has no stand. It has no solid basis. You can't, you can't pin it down. Always clean and pure. Where can dust lie? What place is there for cultivation? And the mind is, is always present, pure, undefiled. And this became this was this, this difference was was emphasized by one of Huang's disciples and sort of turned into a a, a controversy. Um, but really, this this debate, this controversy, um, as is often the case with controversies, is that um, they ref reflect the existence of some kind of a, a creative tension where, where <clears throat> in actual fact, um, gradual and sudden are, are, are intimately connected. There are aspects of, of Zen which are sudden. Um, insight happens, it comes unbidden. We can't, we can't make it occur when we want it to. And and it, it it's it's not something that is that happens as a result of accumulation of anything. But there is also cultivation involved. It's it's necessary, and this will come out in the second part of this dialogue with Mansa and Sanim. Um, but it doesn't cause the awakening. The, the, the cultivation is, is reveals, reveals it, clears, clears away what is, uh, was obstructing the, the, the revelation of the truth. Another example of a of a controversy like this, which seems to seemingly two opposites are actually closely related, would be nurture versus nature. Are we a result of our um, genetic inheritance, or are we a result of our conditioning? But in fact, they're they're two deeply interrelated processes that that um, affect each other. Anyhow. Um, just to get to the last part, we're running out of time. We go to the second question. So um, we can admire this nun for for um, persisting, for coming back with a second question. 
So, so um, she says, how can I obtain release from birth and death? And Mang Sayong says, who chains you to birth and death? Now birth and death here means, means samsara, the, the wheel of existence. The, our, all the ups and downs that of unenlightened life where we're buffeted by uh, circumstances success and failure, gain and loss approval and blame fame and ignominy the things that really that, that, that bother us and, and distress us Rather than, than um, answering this nun's question, again, Man Sayong shoots a question. What chains you to birth and death? She could have, she could have given a lecture, but she, instead she, she puts the ball back in this nun's court. And, and we have to ask these, this question ourselves. What chains me to birth and death? What causes me to suffer here? Ask it ourselves and ask it exhaustively. And specifically, not just in the, sort of in a, in a general sense, but what binds us right now as we're um, interacting with our practice or with people, our work. And can we catch what's going on as they actually happen, the patterns that are, that are unfolding? What is it that, that holds me back from greater intimacy? What am I telling myself? Or what, what things going on in my body are the the triggers to send me into a particular kind of spiral into into uh, panic or depression or or anger. Often at the beginning we can't catch these things in the moment, but as we as we gain um, understanding, then um, and and we can. First of all, maybe we look back on, on an incident and, and, and recognize what has happened, but then over time we can get to the point where we do catch it sooner and sooner, and we can break um, the habit patterns that, that hold us in, in thrall in different ways. Whatever the, whatever the passions are that that are particularly bothersome to us. I'll just finish up with, um, with a poem from uh, Mary Oliver.
one that we can uh, we can connect perhaps to this this um, no cultivated no cultivation aspect of our, our practice. It's called wild geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. You only, you tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless flying passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.org dot org dot nz